So today we're not going to have one text that we're going to camp out in. Uh, usually if you come to Frontline Church, you know that we preach through books of the Bible. Often when we're preaching through books of the Bible, we'll take a chapter, a few verses, and we'll just camp out there. Today is going to feel a bit more like a shotgun blast. And before we get to the shotgun blast, let, let me explain why we're doing this. Uh, we're about to turn 12 years old as a church on Easter Sunday, 12 years old. It's a big deal. I didn't think we were going to make it, if I can be honest. Uh, I had no idea that we would survive to be 12 years old. And, and now we're almost 12 years old, and, and we feel a bit like a 12-year-old as a church, don't we? We're kind of awkward. Uh, we got a little bit of acne. We, we don't really know what we're doing. We're exceedingly hormonal as an organization and institution. Uh, but, but here's the big idea. Uh, as we celebrate our 12th birthday... There's some hopes and dreams that we think Jesus has for the church that should frame the hopes and dreams that we have as a group of people. Uh, it makes sense that if Jesus is alive, if he's real, and if he's alive and if he's the head of the church, that the playbook we should be running out of is not my set of opinions or your set of opinions about his church, but the playbook that we should be running is like sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying to him, you're the one that purchased many people from every tribe, nation, and tongue with your blood to be the family of God. So you're the boss. You get to call balls and strikes. Uh, you get to determine the direction, the future, the DNA, and the hopes and dreams of the church. And so last week, as we talked about that, what we said was the thing we're praying for as we move from being um, a church plant into the years that are coming of being sort of an established church, the thing that we're fighting for and dreaming into is that we would not become an internally focused dead institution. That we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't go the way of so many churches where they get to a point where there's people attending and, and there's enough resources to sort of keep it afloat where we get to that tragic place where church becomes a warehouse where we just store God's people and God's resources or even worse yet, where church just becomes kind of this consumeristic, disgusting exchange of religious ideas between leaders and people. Like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go down that path. We don't want to be a church that's about our brand or our name. We don't want to be a church that's about our comfort. What we really want is to be a part of the missional movement of Jesus. We believe Jesus loves our cities. He loves Edmond and Guthrie, and he loves downtown OKC, and he loves Yukon and Mustang, and he loves South OKC and Moore and Norman. He loves Shawnee, Oklahoma. He cares about these places. And what we learned when we were walking through the book of Acts together in 2016 and the beginning of 2017, what we learned is like inherent in the DNA of Jesus' church is this beautiful commitment to multiplication as disciples make disciples and as churches give birth to churches. So in, in the simplest terms that I know how to put it, like the hope of our church is that we couldn't, that we wouldn't just be um, a dead institution, but that we would just get to play that we get to participate in the movement of Jesus that's all about our city, our state, and our nation, and the nations. And so last week, we kicked that off by talking about the very heart of that movement. Um, it, it's not our brand. It's not our philosophy. The heart of missional movement is the gospel. The gospel. That's at the core of what missional movement is, the person and work of Jesus. And, and what we talked about last week is that the gospel is profoundly different than both philosophy and religion. It's different than philosophy. It's not just another system of belief. 
And it's vastly different than religion, a set of rituals or rules or standards that human beings try to live up to to get on the good graces of God. What we looked at last week is that the gospel is radically different than both of those. The gospel actually brings hope to people that are lost in rebellion towards God through irreligion and hope to people that are lost in their dead religion. And we walk through one of Jesus' great stories where he talks about his heart for both those that are far from him in their good deeds that they're doing to try to earn God's favor and grace, people that are far from God in their comparison where they say, hey, I thank you, God, that I'm not like those people over there, whatever that group of people might be. And we talked about his heart for those that are on the outside of tradition and the outside of moral standards. He loves both groups. He loves both groups, and he's called us to reach both groups. Today, we get to take the next step, and we're going to talk about something that's essential if we're going to be a missional movement, and that's just the reality of the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. Um, When we talk about the gospel, and we talk about what Jesus has done, it's really essential that we realize that all of the Christian life is, all of the Christian life is in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what's crazy is a lot of times the church starts to become this sort of man-centered monument to what we can pull off without God. Here's what I mean. Um, I think there's some pretty smart people in our church, right? There's some of you guys that are pretty brilliant. I'm looking out and seeing faces and knowing your stories. And uh, I think of guys like my friend Emily, who's this genius entrepreneur who started multiple nonprofits. And um, she's just brilliant, man. She's incredibly smart. She's incredibly driven. I I feel like Emily and a ton of other people like Emily, we could sit down together and we could whiteboard out a strategy to make a difference in the world. And and that that wouldn't be bad or wrong. But if at the end of the day, our confidence is in our intellect and our strength, our ability to plan or our ability to budget or our ability to hustle or our ability to show up and and sort of be the answer, like anybody, basketball fan, Allen Iverson, remember when he got the tattoo, the answer? If our mentality of the church is like, we're the answer and we're stepping into the brokenness of our neighborhoods and the brokenness of the world and we're the answer, then again and again, what's gonna happen is we're gonna be a part of a man-centered movement instead of a God-empowered movement. And, And everything that's profoundly jacked up in the world that we live in, the things that are eternally broken, right? The fractured relationships between God and man and man and man. The things that are just so off that it just stinks in our noses and stinks in the nose of God. Those things are way beyond our ability to redeem, reconcile, and renew because we're going to work really hard. We need the spirit of the living God infusing our work and our planning and our dreaming and our labor. Francis Schaeffer was a pretty brilliant guy. He wrote some great books Here's what Francis Schaeffer says about this. The Lord's work in the Lord's way is the Lord's work in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of the flesh. The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism, nor the new Roman Catholicism, or the threat of communism, or even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus which surrounds us whatever that means. All of these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. Here's what he's saying. Um, There's all kinds of isms in the world. Some of them are more pure. Some of them are less pure. All of them have a lot of bad stuff included in whatever might be good. 
And right now in this moment, like we could say years after he wrote this, we, we, we could say we want to add some isms to the list, postmodernism, materialism, whatever it is that's happening in our political climate where there's such polarization and fear and animosity. So there's all kinds of things out there that are working against the work of renewal. But here's what he says. I love this. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than in the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Like, friends, like the biggest threat to the mission of Jesus is not what's happening in our political climate. It's not the rise of populism or nationalism. It's not the rise of xenophobia. It's not all of the things that might be broken out there. It's not secular humanism. It's not extreme liberalism. It's not extreme conservatism. Uh, There may be threats in all those things, but the biggest threat facing the church is this really sick, broken view of the work of God in which we say to Jesus, hey, we got this. We got this. In our own discipleship and growth, we got this. In our mission to the city, we got this. In our care for the poor, the broken, the needy, we got this. Anytime the church says we got this, we've departed from the message of Jesus. Are you guys with me? So today, what I want to do is I want to talk about the beauty of God the Holy Spirit. And and when I say God the Holy Spirit, I want to say a couple of things up front before we dive in. First of all, we're not talking about an it when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm a big Star Wars fan, not as big as some of you. Uh, My assistant happens to have a lightsaber tattooed to his leg. True story. It's a great tattoo. You should ask him if you can see it. Uh, I'm not that level of Star Wars fan, but I like me some Star Wars. Uh, I like me some Star Wars. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, there's this drift in a lot of our hearts and minds to think that we're talking about an impersonal force in the Holy Spirit, that he's just this energy that moves, or he's this invisible force that kind of moves through all things, and it's not really personal, he's not really, he's not really God, he's just sort of the manifestation of God's will in the world. And I just want to say up front, here's what we see throughout scripture, God the Holy Spirit is God. He's not an it, he's a he. And what we see in scripture is that God the Holy Spirit has will, he has desires, He has presence that he brings into relationship. Um, He can be sinned against. He can be grieved. He can be rejected. He can be received. He can be hosted. God the Holy Spirit is not an it. God the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God. God. In addition to that, when we talk about God the Holy Spirit, um, I understand why it gets a little confusing because when we talk about God the Father, we, we at least have a grid for that. Unfortunately, most of us have a terrible grid for that. Uh, But we have an idea of what a father is or what a father should be. When we talk about God the Son, we can kind of track with that. We get that. But when we talk about God the Holy Spirit, the metaphors that are used to describe him get confusing. Like he's described as being like a wind. Like a wind. What do you do with that? He's like a wind, meaning you can't control him. Um, We're we're engaging in a lot of prayer and fasting as a church right now. and, And we're doing that not because you can make revival happen. Revival is not something that you do when you put up a tent in front of your church and set a date for it. Revival is when God the Holy Spirit decides to go blast on darkness in a city. It's when he shows up. So we can't make him do stuff. He's like a wind in that he's not controllable. We can hoist a sail, but we can't make him blow, right? In addition, um, the Bible talks about him being like a fire. 
like a fire. Jesus talked about how he came to baptize with, with the Holy Spirit in fire, meaning that picture is telling us that his name is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that burns away sin that's warring against our souls and our relationships and the very fabric of the universe. He's the one that burns the hell out of us from the inside out so we can be more like Jesus. And then the Bible talks about him being like water, like water. He's, he's like water on a thirsty soul. He's like water on thirsty ground. And what you see if you read the Old Testament is that again and again, there's this big thread that moves through the entire Old Testament. It's not, it's not a collection of greatest hits where God's talking about these different people so that you can just emulate them. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God moving near to humanity in the person of Jesus. And the title for Jesus in the Old Testament is Messiah. Messiah. He was the promised one. And that word Messiah means the anointed one. Jesus was predicted to be, he was prophesied to be this Messiah who would be a king who would be filled by and empowered by the person and work of the spirit. And he would come to bring, he would come to bring freedom to those who were captives. And what we see is the hope of the Old Testament is that the Messiah would come and he would do a work through his death and resurrection that would change humanity but he would also make it possible for God the Holy Spirit to dwell in and among God's people to bring transformation in us and transformation through us. So Jesus came, he came to accomplish things in his life, death, and resurrection to transform our relationship with God, our relationship with each other profoundly, and he came so that through his work, the spirit of the living God could dwell among us and in us. This is why throughout the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah 32, the picture is sin brings devastation. Um, if, if you think of the landscape that sin creates, it's not just a list of moral taboos that conservative people broke and make rules about because they don't want people to have fun. Sin is the force of deconstruction. Sin is the state of the human heart that basically says, I want all the stuff that God made, but I don't want anything to do with him. I want creation, not creator. And that standpoint, that view brought death into the world and that death spread. And what the scripture says again and again is that we lost the kind of harmony and shalom that human beings were made to live in. We were made to live in society together, loving God and loving each other and building culture that would reflect the beauty and goodness of God. But instead, what we've done in sin is we've brought desolation instead of shalom. We've brought decay instead of relationship. We've brought fracturing, man. We've brought, we've brought all kinds of things that make our society have little pieces of it that are beautiful because we're image bearers. But as a whole, when we build cities and cultures, what we find is that spiritually, they're like deserts. And the promise of the Old Testament is that Jesus, the Messiah, would come and he would pour out the Holy Spirit on culture and he would take what's desolate and apocalyptic and turn it into a beautiful, thriving garden of hope again. This is our dream and our prayer, and our, our, our belief for our church that we could be like an oasis, not because we're better than anybody because we're not, not because we're smarter than anybody because we're not, not because we deserve it because we don't, but simply because of the work of Jesus on the cross and the sending of the Spirit from Jesus to us, our hope is that our community, 
our congregations and our community groups could be outposts of thriving and flourishing with God and with each other for the good of our city. So with that in mind, here's what we're going to do. I want to take a few minutes and and I just want to walk through what does the Holy Spirit do? And this is not going to be comprehensive. This is not everything that the Bible teaches, but knowing that in this room, there's some people that have seen some really kooky things in the name of the Holy Spirit. Like we won't take a poll, but a lot of you guys have been burned by leaders and pastors that said, hey, this is the Holy Spirit. And then they proceeded to do something that was not really scriptural and not really helpful. And so some of you are a little, you're a little cynical. You're a little worried. You're a little shy. Like we said, we were going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And you started shifting in your seat, checking your phone because things are about to get weird, right? Um, and, and then some of you are new Christians that you just don't even know how central the work of the Holy Spirit is. And some of you have been following Jesus for a long time and you've forgotten You've forgotten of just how badly you need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, listen to these words of Jesus, and then we'll dive into this, and I'm just going to bullet out some things that the Holy Spirit does. John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage if I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Can you just stop and let that verse scandalize you for a minute? Jesus had lived with these guys for three years. For three years, they got to walk with Jesus, see Jesus bring hope and healing and deliverance and mercy and grace. They saw Jesus feed multitudes with like like a little bit of bread and fish. They saw Jesus in his glory. They, They experienced Jesus like opening his mouth and bringing life to people. And now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going, but it's actually gonna be better for you Because if I go, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, if I was there, I would have been like, Jesus, actually, it's better for me if you stay because you're Jesus, right? It's like, like, I think you're confused about this because actually I need you here so I can see you and talk with you and so that I can lay my head on your shoulder in my despair and you comfort me. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, actually, it would be better for Frontline Church to have God the Holy Spirit poured out in among us and in us than even having Jesus living in our neighborhood in his earthly ministry. It's better. Why? Well, let me give you 17 things that the Holy Spirit does. True story, 17 things. True story. They don't all start with the same letter. I'm just gonna list them and I'm gonna go through them quickly. 17 things that are beautiful about the Holy Spirit. One, he brings life. Psalm 104, 29 says, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. The Holy Spirit brings life. If it wasn't for the work of the spirit, there would be no life on this planet. Secondly, he brings the new birth. He brings the new birth. Now, can I stop here for just a second? I got a lot of um, friends of mine that that are not believers in Jesus and they hear about born-again Christians Um, something's happened either in the way that Christians have talked about the new birth or in the way that media or uh, whatever talks about the new birth where a lot of my non-Christian friends think that born-again Christians are just like a hyper-fundamentalist sect of Christianity. It's like, are you born again? Yes, I only listen to Christian music and I make my own pants, right? I churn my own butter. I'm born again. And I want to read the words of Jesus to you. Because actually, there is no such thing as a Christian that hasn't been born again. Here's what the scripture says, John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here's what it means to be born again by the Spirit. Our hearts don't love God. The scripture describes the state of our spirituality as not kind of sick, but in our sin, we're born into a state of death. It doesn't mean that we're not like able to live and think and move, but what it means is when it comes to seeing and treasuring God above his creation, our hearts are totally blind to him. We don't love him. We don't love his word. We don't love Jesus. We love everything that he made to the exclusion of the one that made it. And what the new birth is, is this miracle where God, the Holy Spirit, takes a heart that doesn't love God and doesn't hate sin, and he softens it, and he makes it come alive. Um, this is pretty cool. This happens a lot in our church where we'll have non-Christians that are here for a really long time, and they're like, I'm not a Christian because you guys are weird, but I'm going to keep showing up because you're saying some interesting things. And then over the course of time, sometimes six months, sometimes three years, there comes this point where it's like, hey, I'm not a Christian, but you know, like, I really do love Jesus, and I'm starting to see the sin in my life, and I'm starting to hate it, and I'm repenting of that sin and trying to trust and follow Jesus. And I have to say, hey, uh, dude, I have really bad news for you. You're a Christian now. You're a Christian now, because what's happened is your heart didn't love God, and now it loves God. You want to know Jesus, and that's the work of the Spirit. Third thing, he empowers the church. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, do not try to be a missional movement without the Holy Spirit. Wait until I send him. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, we see fourthly that he gifts Christians for ministry. I love this. It says, all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions or distributes to each one individually as he wills. Okay, let's pause here for just a second. Two things. One, there's no such thing as Christians that aren't gifted for serving and ministering. No such thing. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually a really dysfunctional myth that the really gifted people get to be pastors and that the regular Christians are the quote-unquote laity. Right? There are leaders in the church and God calls them to serve the people of God, but God calls them to serve the people of God so that the people of God can figure out how God's gifted them for life and ministry. And the reality is you may not know what your gifts are and there may be more gifts yet to come that you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for, but if you love Jesus, listen to me, you have been given gifts. And you're not supposed to sit on your gifts. You're not supposed to disrespect the gifts of God. You're not supposed to leave them unopened under the tree. Every Christian's been gifted and it's your job to figure out how do I unwrap that and use that to the glory of God and to the good of my city to serve and love my neighbors. Fifthly, thanks, thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit helps us pray. It's really hard to pray. I often don't know how to pray. I often run into roadblocks with prayer. And Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In addition to that, number six, I love this, he purifies. He purifies. We, we've talked about him being like a fire. Um, every single person that loves and follows Jesus still has flesh, don't we? We still sin. We still desire stuff that's not of God. Like we still, we still want to make the trade for creator for creation. And, and here's what the Holy Spirit does. 
The Holy Spirit is like a refining fire in your life that as you study scripture and worship and pray, what starts to happen is he starts to shift your affections off of all the stuff that you used to think would complete you. And he starts to realign your affections or the directional needle of your heart to point towards Jesus as the treasure. He brings sanctification. He brings purification. Seventh, he convicts. He convicts. Jesus talks about this in John 6, that the Spirit of God came to convict the world. Um, That's conviction unto meeting Jesus, right? Like that thing that happens when you hear about the cross and resurrection and you're like, oh man, that feels like it pierced my heart. That's the Holy Spirit convicting. But how many people have noticed after following Jesus, conviction doesn't stop, right? Um, Some of you are brand new Christians and you're like, dude, I used to totally get away with stuff six months ago that didn't bother me. It didn't hurt my conscience. And now it really, like it wounds my soul when I do the things I used to do. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit. He's helping, he's helping you to see the things that God says are beautiful are beautiful and the things that God says are destructive and ugly really are destructive and ugly. Eight, I love this. He brings fruit into our lives. Let me read this. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I love this. Here's what it's saying. As you learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and be led by the Holy Spirit, what he's going to produce in your life over time is the fruit of the Spirit, which includes these beautiful things. Now, that's not something you can do without him. Um, In fact, I'll just challenge you, wake up tomorrow morning and you just resolve with all of your strength that by God, you're going to be real patient today. Like, I'm just going to kill it with patience. I'm going to be so kind today. Resolve to be kind. All my dealings. But the problem with that is, yeah, I mean, there is effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. There's effort. But here's what you got to understand. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the presence of the Spirit. And as you meet with God in prayer and worship and community and going to work and having meals with family, it's the spirit of God that's working in your life to grow you over time to look like Jesus. And can we just stop and imagine for a second, just imagine how beautiful the church would be in Oklahoma City if we became like a garden where all this fruit was there. How sweet would it be if there was just like an abundance of kindness that we had towards hurting, suffering people in our city? How amazing would it be if the men of our church, if the men of our church were so captured by the gospel and transformed by the spirit that we really related to women as like not objects, but as human beings to be loved and honored. That would be so bizarre to our city. It's the spirit of God that can produce that. Um, In addition, he leads us. That's Galatians 5, 16 through 18. He leads us. We learn to listen to his voice in the word and in worship and in prayer and in communion and in silence. We learn to hear him and he guides and orders our steps. Uh, Number 11, this is one of my favorites. He glorifies Jesus. John 16, 14 says, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Um, One of the greatest marks of a spirit-filled Christian and a spirit-filled church is that we love Christ. Like the more the spirit grabs your heart and your soul, the more you're gonna find Jesus beautiful. And can I just say, if you're a follower of Jesus and Jesus has just kind of become old hat to you, 
Like, you're, you're just no longer in awe of who he is and what he did through the cross. One of the things that you need to make the focus of your prayer is, Spirit of God, will you glorify Jesus in my life? Help me to love him. Help me to know him. Help me to see just how scandalous the grace of God in the cross is. Number 12, he makes grace experiential. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I love this. Grace is not just a theological construct. It's not just an idea. Grace is the relational experience of the love of God that you have because of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Grace is this beautiful thing in which your heart starts to cry out louder than the shame that's constantly speaking and the guilt and the fear. Grace experienced is when your heart actually lays hold of all that shares in Jesus and you say, oh wow, I really am loved. I really am accepted. I've really been adopted. I think a lot of my life, it feels like a plane trying to bust through the clouds, right? And I'm, I'm trying to walk and commune and abide with the love of God. But often, like, the loudest voices are shame and fear and guilt. It's the Spirit of God that helps you have, hopefully, increasing moments of breaking through the clouds and experiencing the light of God's love in your soul. He loves you. It's the Spirit of God that makes that an experiential reality in your life. 13, he seals us. We can talk about that in Ephesians 1. He stamps you. It's like, this one belongs to the living God for now and forever. He empowers gospel preaching. He pours love into our hearts. He brings peace, joy, and comfort. 17, he unifies followers of Jesus. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He takes all these people that are isolated and disconnected and through the gospel, he brings us together and then the spirit binds us and bonds us in relationship so that we can actually care for and love each other. Now, with all that stuff in mind, let let me just make a couple of applications and we're gonna pray and receive the table. As we close, let me just say this. You might have heard a lot of debate about being filled with the Spirit. Um, People talk about baptism of the Spirit. Some Christians basically say, hey, if if you've experienced the new birth, you've experienced pretty much all of the Spirit that you're ever going to have. Other Christians have said, hey, you can be born again, but you need to have a subsequent experience of grace in which you're baptized in the Spirit. Now, not to try to confuse you, let me just try to bring that down to ground level. Here's what you need to see. If you are born again and love Jesus, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. You have the Spirit. He's inside of you. But it would be a tragic mistake to only expect that initial moment of transformation. It would be a tragic mistake for you to stop there and say, that's all that I should expect in my relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, until I die and see Jesus. Because the truth is this, Paul says in Ephesians, that we're not to be drunk with wine, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. And and literally the Greek there is a continual filling. It's that the Spirit of God needs to fill us again and again and bring times of deeper repentance, 
deeper love for Jesus, deeper boldness with the gospel, deeper care for our families, our neighbors, our city, our state. We need the Holy Spirit. So as we close this today, um, some of us in the room, we need to repent for reacting to abuses with cynicism. Just because Benny Hinn does weird junk on TBN, just because there's dudes doing weird stuff on TBN, just because there's fools pushing people over, right? Just because there's people that manipulate, just because there's people that say, thus says the Lord, and then weird, ridiculous, non-biblical stuff comes out of their mouth. Just because there's abuses, there's no justification to become cynical Christians that are afraid of God, the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be afraid of God, the Holy Spirit. If there's going to be a fear, let it be fear that we're not walking with him, listening to him and loving him and receiving the gifts that we need to minister to each other and to our city. Some of us, some of us just need to initiate a conversation today that says, hey, um, I've stopped growing and become stagnant. And today I want to repent and I want to ask for refreshing to come from the Holy Spirit to renew my love for Jesus and his word my desire to use my gifts to serve my neighbors and to be on mission. Some of us just badly need, like, we just need to open up our hands and say, Spirit of God, awaken my affections for Jesus again. Over the next period of time as we wrap up missional movement, we're just going to be taking chunks as a church, praying and fasting. Fasting is not something you do to get God to love you. It's not legalistic. It's not something you have to do. Fasting is trying to say, hey, there's so many things that are good gifts of God, but they all, they all pale in comparison to him as the great treasure. Fasting is about feasting on God. So we're going to take time as a church and just say, hey, you know what? Like this week, um, man, I'm just going to like shut down social media for just a chunk of time. And the time I'd put into that, I just want to sit with the Holy Spirit and talk to him and listen to him. Or maybe that's a meal a week, or maybe that's like, uh, given up something that's a good gift that you can normally receive gra- gratefully, but it's given up one of those gifts to say, you know what? The great treasure is you and we want to know you. We need more of the Holy Spirit if we're going to be a missional movement. 